everyone and welcome back to Then Again. I am Marie Bartlett and I am the director of the Ada May Ivester Education Center here at the museum. So today I have with me Megan Kimmelshue, doctoral candidate at Bangor University in Wales. So one of the things that I love about studying kids in the past and their experiences in childhood across history is that kids are always just, they're, they're kids, no matter what age they are in throughout history they have these wonderful imaginations they like playing with toys or they create toys out of objects that they find in their environment kids are always playing with their friends or with their siblings and they enjoy doing art projects or arts and crafts and kids they're they're constantly learning about themselves and their culture and their environment and it seems like they continue to learn in the same ways, even if their culture and their environment are different throughout history. And the ways that we teach children can sometimes be a little different or the things that we teach them. And that is what we're going to be really talking about today. We're going to be talking about kids and their experiences in the Iron Age. Could you just give our, our listeners a brief definition so we know where we're headed back to in history? Sure. So in in Britain, the Iron Age is used as a classif classification term for the period roughly around 800 BC leading up to around 43 AD or somewhere in that first century AD. And this is pre-Roman Iron Age. So there is contact um, you know, with the uh, the European populations at this time, um, but there is also a lot of insular practices happening. And so we've continued to fine tune the chronologies to, uh, to show kind of that Britain in the first millennium BC was a very uh, regionally focused place with pra different practices and identities. Uh, but for just a general conversation, uh, the approximate 800 year time span during the first millennium BC is just a helpful uh, term to use. And during this period, the communities were primarily small-scale agricultural societies. So the primary concerns that we find are going to come from within that sphere. And then the beliefs and ideas about life um, are enacted out of, out of that way of life. Um, so the Iron Age is a fascinating period in history. It sees a continuity of practice uh, persisting from the Bronze Age, but it also is a time of innovation and change with new art and technology uh, and um, changes in burial practices. So that show us that beliefs about religion and identity were also shifting. Uh, so there's a, lot, there's a lot going on during this first millennium BC. And um, so, you know, the experiences of children would will, will vary and there will be different types of childhoods. But I agree with you that you know, cognitively, uh, children still are developing uh, similarly. And so we can try and get a, um, a bird's eye view of what their experience might have been like during this time. Could you give us a little bit of a, a peek into what exactly a child's education would look like in the Iron Age? You know, today, kids, they go to school. And generally, that's where we assume that they are going to learn, you know, how to read and write and do arithmetic and all of those wonderful basics. And then there's also education that goes on in the home, you know, learning how to cook clean and, you know, learn about more of their, their culture and, and language at, at home. So how, how do they learn in the Iron Age? And then how does that kind of compare to, to today? Sure. So, our picture of, as archaeologists, our picture of children's education in Iron Age Britain in particular is is incomplete. So there are a lot of historical sources at this time. Uh, uh, 
on childhood in the classical world and the more formalized education that's happening over there. Um, however, we don't have that luxury of, of those sources in Britain and uh, actually West Central Europe. Uh, to say the least. So using ethnographic analogies for how children learn can be very helpful to at least make some well-informed guesses. And um, exploring education in the classical world too can help us um, also see maybe parallel choices that might have been made during that time. So, but uh, I, like I said before, we're talking about an agro-pastoral society and the primary instructors are mainly going to come from within the family or your social group. And the social learning is going to drive skills acquisition and then transmission. And also happening alongside skills acquisition and transmission is cultural knowledge. So we also see a great deal of specialized work produced during this period. And so that brings into the conversation questions of uh, apprenticeships whether those are formal or informal. Um, so we have two types of environments. We have the settlement environment, which these are your um, small farmsteads. They can be enclosed with, with uh, ditches and kind of you know set with clear boundaries in the landscape, or they can be uh, unenclosed and just um, little villages of, of people living together. There are also larger population centers. And, and from there, there's also specialized skills um, but the, specialize, the specialization is happening at, at both places. So the education for the children living within the settlement would likely be different from the education happening from those living in the larger population centers. So when you're living in a, a farmstead settlement, during this period, a lot of times you're moving about seasonally, so it's uh, called transhumance. So you know you're moving upland during certain times of year, and then you're moving lowland. You're moving around with your cattle, uh, and um, it's tied also to the agricultural cycles. So a lot of the work that you do and that you learn how to do, the craft work at least, is going to happen on um, seasonal cycles. So if you think during the winter, it's a time to hunker down and um, maybe hone some of those skills that you've been picking up. Um, but, you know, during the harvest time or periods like that, you're really going to be too busy to, to do these things. So it follows a lot of um, the agricultural yearly cycle. Within that, there's um, age categories, too, are seem to be important from uh, the archaeological record. It suggests that uh, children start participating from a young age in just daily domestic tasks. And then uh, as they move, as they get older uh, and maybe move through certain rites of passage, they can be more involved in some of those specialized skills. So like you said, the education at home would be um, received in the early years of the child's life up to about the age of six or seven. And then depending on your social class or your social structure, and we get this parallel from the, uh, the classical world and also medieval Welsh and Irish texts, it seems like some of the more, the higher class or elite children would have been given out to foster parents. And this may have also been the precursor to formal apprenticeships where craftspeople are taking in these children as foster children, um, they're caring for them, but they're also teaching them and increasing the knowledge pool while also maintaining social relationships between the child's family and this the foster family as well. So when we look at this, it's a lot of education at home and then apprenticeships for 
certain trades. Uh, do we know about like what some of those perhaps more popular trades would have been? Well, on the farmsteads, a lot of uh, work is being done within the community. So they're making goods for their own community. And then if there's excess or it's um, you know a skill that they have made enough to trade they'll also trade on a more regional or super regional level. So it's not so much an intensive industry in Britain at this point. Um, there are special locations where, um, for example, in the south of Britain, we have the Isle of Purbeck, and there they are making uh, shale arm, arm bracelets. And um, this is, it's kind of a workshop setting. So there's a lot of um, discard from this process. And um, so that's one of the ways we can look for like specialized craft work is in these workshops that we found. And um, interestingly enough, some of these bracelets made from this kind of symbolic special material because it actually diffuses throughout Britain. And we even find some Kimmeridge shale pieces on the continent. So it clearly was a very highly prized uh, objects, but we find that um, about twenty percent of these bracelets are actually uh, would fit children. So you know there's specialized work going on here and training going along uh, at these at these sites. And so you know it's not kind of cut and dried to say oh this is an apprenticeship site and this is a home education site. Um, it the lines are are very blurred because it also may have been that those those workshop sites were, were also seasonal as well. So when they were in the area, they, you know, they um, were involved in these activities. It's so interesting, especially to like learn about things that are so, so far back where a lot of the things that we don't have as much information perhaps as, you know, something that just happened 50, 100 years ago, you know, we're talking several, several hundreds upon hundred years ago to see what survives and what that can tell us about that culture and that society. Uh, and that really leads into the next question that I was going to ask you, which is what kind of crafts did children participate in making? Because I know I absolutely adored arts and crafts as a kid. I, I All of the kids, my, my niece and nephew, they loved making things. But what did kids make? And also, do we know how perhaps useful those objects were? Are, are they more of a, a type of training tool for them to learn how to make it? Or was were their kids making things that were then used in their home? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's probably both. Um, so from the agricultural record, we have direct evidence showing children participating in pottery production. And so we can look at fingerprint analysis on pottery fabrics and the motif elements used on those fabrics. Uh, during this period, they are using fingernail imprints to decorate vessels. And um, recent research has analyzed these sizes and seen that, um, you know, they do belong to, to children. And so, you know, children as young as five beginning to learn uh, an essential skill like pottery production. And whether they start out, you know, just making these little thumb pots that we find, you know, we do find little miniature pots, um, although it's unclear whether they are are toys or if they're, you know, have they have, have a ritual function, but it does show that the children were a part of this process. Pottery is a bit difficult as well, because during the Iron Age, there actually is a whole swath of Britain that be, decides to become a ceramic. So they just decide to stop using pottery altogether. So we're a bit limited to uh, evidence from Southern Britain in this area, but even so, 
you know, there are there is some clear evidence of children working alongside or independently in making these these vessels that would have been used for um, all sorts of things, storage, cooking, religious function, and um, sometimes even even in burials as well. So that's some of the direct evidence that we have uh, for children making crafts. Um, and there's a bit of indirect evidence as well. Uh, so there are these really beautiful objects called weaving combs, and they're typically made of bone or antler. And they're sometimes inscribed and carved with decorative motifs. So um, the, the best examples, in, in my opinion, come from the Somerset Lake villages. So these are very well-made combs. And um, there's been arguments that it was made by a full-time craftsman as opposed to like a, you know, a migrating specialist. And But some of the motifs on them don't match the quality of the comb itself. So that brings up the question of, is this an apprentice learning how to in inscribe decorative motifs into these bone combs? Was this bone comb given to someone and they did the decoration themselves? From the Southwest United States, there has been some motif analysis there. And I thought it was interesting to bring that motif analysis and apply them to these bone combs to see if perhaps, even though we don't have something so clear as fingerprints, we do, we can analyze the motifs and, and um, you know, make a well-informed guess as to whether they were made or carved by children or not. You know, but indirectly as well, during that craft work, you know, you, you have to collect the, the bone or the antler, you have to prepare it, which involves soaking, you have to dry it, then you have to work it, and then you have to polish it. So there are these whole, um, you know, in they, it's a term called chaîne opératoire, or an operating chain. There's specific steps that you have to go through to make a finished object. And clarifying these steps and then seeing where children could have participated in these steps uh, is also very valuable, even if you don't have the direct evidence uh, that you need. So it just helps to bring children into the conversation of craft work during this period, um, because oftentimes we're just looking at the finished product and we have to think about everything that went into that product first particularly if it's on a settlement location, um, you know, you the, the community in some way will have been involved and will have known about these, these productions. You could extend this out to textiles as well. I mean, yeah, we, children love to, you know, to do that fine handiwork. You know, that's a, that's a really important cognitive development, learning how to do things with your, small things with your hands. Um, and so there is, there is room also to talk about children's roles in some of these finer textiles and the, the fine braid braids that you find. Unfortunately, a lot of textiles in Britain don't survive, so we have to look uh, elsewhere on the continent. But there are a few pieces that do survive, and it's also interesting thinking about the way children children could have been in, involved in those processes. And oh, before I forget, with the textiles, Everyone in the community would likely have been spinning wool at this time as well, because the amount of wool yarn that you would need to create clothing for a community, say you live in a, uh, a farming settlement of about you know, 20 people, children included, you're going to need you know, near miles of wool yarn. And so starting with a drop spindle, 
if people are familiar with spinning wool, uh, would have happened from probably the, the youngest age possible. So David Lancey, he's an anthropologist, he talks a lot about what's called the reserve labor force. And it's this idea that children are trained up in what is needed for the community from a very early age, so that if there are specific pressures or times of great stress or a, an, you know, a death, the children can be called upon to just jump in and participate in the labor that needs to be done without having to be trained right then and there. So it's a gradual process of um, you know, induction into the community through learning all of these tasks that need to be done for the flourishing of the community. You know, I think we, we probably even do that without even realizing it today is, you know, we'd show them where our needs are. And of course, that's where you're like, oh, well, yes, I could get a job doing X, Y or Z because that's a growing field and industry. Yeah, exactly. And it's um, it is hard to wrap our, our modern minds around, you know, how involved they would have been. But even if you just go back a few generations and talk to, you know, talk about your great grandparents or your great great grandparents, you know, you know, my family came from a farming family and um the, the children were carrying water and watching stock and, you know, doing uh, farm chores from from a very early age. And so, you know, those types of things, they don't really change in, in what's needed to create a successful community to keep everybody fed, warm, uh, you know, and and um, alive, really. So it's it's interesting to just even go back a few generations and think about the skills that children would have had that um, just aren't, that our minds don't quite account for these days. So um, even though it was, you know, about 2000 years ago, in those ways, you know, children would have been just as integral to their communities as they were to like a farm farming family a few generations ago. Absolutely. I, you were talking about how, you know, we might not think about the kids doing the exact crafts. We have to think about how they were helpful in the preparation. How did they, did they were, were they sent out into the woods to go find antlers or something like that? Because my, my dad also kind of grew up on a farm. They would send the kids out uh, to go pick pecans and then they would come back and then my grandma specifically would make the pie. So I was thinking like, well, grandma made the pie, obviously, but she wasn't the only one involved in the production of that pie. The kids were very intricately involved or, you know, picking blackberries or anything like that. Yeah. And the day would come where, you know, your grandmother would say, okay, it's time for you to learn how to make the crust or it's time for you to learn how to make the filling. Like you, you know, you've shown yourself capable. And so now I'm going to pass on these, these skills to you. So, um, you know, it's, it's a, there's a term for it. It's called situated learning where, you know, every, every learning opportunity happens within a social context. So, you know, you don't necessarily know that you're learning, uh, but then you look back and say, oh, I know how to do these things because it was just a part of our daily life. It was part of our um, our seasonal rhythms as well. So, uh, you know, I think similar things were going on within the Iron Age as well, particularly on these farmstead settlements. If they were going to take on the, the stock because you inherited movable goods at this point, you inherited the, the stock and the, um, you know, the goods that you had. And um, that was wealth. And so, you know, you're, you're from an early age being trained in how to care for your wealth, for your goods and for your family, as opposed to like a formalized apprenticeship where you're being sent in order to learn something very specific and possibly even symbolically charged as well, because some of the metal work during the Iron Age, um, there's, you know, theories that um, it was 
almost not a taboo practice, but it was a very uh, specialized and almost liminal and ritually charged practice where only certain people could do that. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's definitely two different lifestyles happening here. So you would ha- have two, possibly two different childhood experiences. I didn't know that that was so, so charged with, with symbolism and ritual and also brings me a little bit to the next question, which was about the practice of childhood burials, because we've talked a little bit about that as you've gone through your question, because of course, burial sites are packed full of symbolism and ritual and tell us a lot about the person also are, are fairly well preserved and can tell us a lot about the, the history of the culture and also some of the material culture, especially if there is a practice of burying people with items or 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 things. So can you tell us a little bit specifically about childhood burials in the Iron Age in Britain? Yeah, sure. And it's, that's also a very big topic. There are so many doctoral uh, dissertations written on just, just, you know, burials in in that way. So it's an an endlessly fascinating subject, but uh, just in a nutshell, yes, you're right. Mortuary practices are, were integral to Iron Age beliefs and also social cohesion as well. Unfortunately for us, there's a lot of invisible burials because uh, there seem to be different types of burial practices that you could choose from. So you could inhume someone, so you could bury them in, in the ground in a certain position, or you could disarticulate them, which is separating their bones. Uh, these can be complete or incomplete. They cremated some people, and um, this is visible, but um, some, sometimes easy to miss. And, um, you know, the, the theory is that the invisible right that um, so many people seem to have experienced, which is why we don't have a lot of burial evidence, it may have been excarnation, uh, which is kind of a, a laying out of the body in a, an outdoor location. But that being said, children are underrepresented in the Iron Age burial record. The most well-represented number we have is in the middle Iron Age, so in that middle period of, that, of the millennium. We do actually, though, have a lot of infant remains. So, so those are well represented, which is which uh, does explain uh, or may explain um, or may be explained by the high mortality rate at that time. But it's hard to really get a um, a handle on whether the mortuary practices are representative of the population, and seems to be that the agreement is that the burial record is not really. a a representation of the living population. So for neonates and infants, generally find them within settlement contexts. So they're found in pits, ditches, ramparts, close to structures, and they're often associated with animal bones and material culture. So the discussions there have been, well, is this signs of an inclusion or an exclusion? Are the infants being included in the family life of the household, wanting to be remembered, which is um, what they would have done in the classical world? Or is it a sign of exclusion? Are they are they not yet people? Are there is there some taboo to to, um, you know, this this small body? So that that remains unclear. And there's also the spatial segregation of infants. So, you know, in the houses and enclosures and you're not normally finding them in cemeteries. There is a caveat to that, though, is we have found uh, looks like some infant cemeteries 
uh, within the Middle Iron Age as well. And then for children, the the subadult population, so you know, ages three, um, six, up to eleven or twelve. Those are really, really underrepresented, and it's not really sure why. So it's it's hard to really say uh, the burial practices for that age. But we do have some examples of rich child burials. So there's a five-year-old burial with um, a pedestal bowl and brooches and a bracelet and an iron pin, and that happens um, at a site in Lytton Cheney in the later Iron Age. But the grave goods that we do find if we do find them, an infant or child burials seem to be items which have some sort of protective association. So for example, amber had a a, um, protective association in in the classical world. So we're assuming that its presence in, in the cemeteries or in the burials had the same function. It's very interesting to consider the ways that people were treating their, their dead during this period. You find them in all different sorts of contexts, and then in the context that you find them in, there's all sorts of different functions to these contexts. So it's hard to know what the prevailing idea behind death or the meaning of death, or if there's life after death. Um, it's it's um, a bit hard for especially our modern minds to get a handle on, on what these things mean. Um, so the more evidence that we get from ex- from carefully done excavations, because infant bone can, can be really hard to find preserved and child bones as well can be hard to find preserved. However, the discrepancy in the numbers between infants and children doesn't explain, uh, like the the preservation doesn't explain why there aren't as many children within the burial record here. Do you have any ideas as to why they're underrepresented? Uh, I know like we can't know for sure why, but do you have any theories based on your research? Well, it seems to, from what... Other archaeologists have the the analysis that they've done. It just suggests maybe a different postmortem rite for children past the infancy stage. So they might have been incorporated into the um, adult mortuary practices. Possibly the adults that we see represented in the burial record were set apart for some reason. Because um, like I said before, there's kind of a missing population of people within the burial record. So uh, questioning why some people were chosen to be interred in these ways and then the rest of the people we can't really see. So it's it's quite perplexing. And especially when you when you know that the demographic models definitely show that we're only seeing a snapshot of the deaths really. Um, so these are people who were chosen to be in a certain location at a certain time and don't really represent the general state of the population. But that said, the grave goods that we find are really valuable for developing theories as to social meanings of, you know, animals, because we find animal bones within burial deposits. In certain areas, you find big chunks of chalk. You find um, sometimes uh, domestic items. So those in and of itself are, are really valuable. Unfortunately, you don't get a lot of those grave goods with infant burials, even though the infants are really well represented. So it continues to be a, a perplexing subject that um, a lot of archaeologists are, are interested in doing more regional research on to understand possible regional practices. 
because until this time, we've kind of been taking it, you know, a a thousand foot view or 5,000 foot view and trying to say, this is how all children were buried during this period. But what we find during the Iron Age is it's there's such a regional variation in what people are are doing and how they're choosing to live their lives and, and treat their dead. So uh, it's a continual fine tuning of our un- powers of analysis, basically. Obviously, we, we've talked a lot about the archaeological record and like finding things from the past that give us more insight. But are there any sources of writing from this time that indicate what is going on in people's lives and especially in the lives of the children uh, or anything like that that survives? Not directly, no, unfortunately. So again, just uh, similar to the burial record, the written information about childhood is very sparse during this period. So you, you know, you do get good records happening in the classical world, uh, but there are no direct accounts about children's lives, particularly within Britain at least that we know of. Uh, So what we do is we have to consider sources referring to um, kind of adjacent communities. So, you know, for example, during this time, Gaul, which is uh, today uh, modern France, um, we know had longstanding links to Britain. And we have texts about life in Gaul during the later Iron Age, um, when uh, Caesar wrote his excursus on the Gauls and his uh, kind of ethnographic account of, of the Gaulish people during his conquest of that area. Now, you have to be quite careful when considering these uh, this account because it wasn't Caesar wanting to be a uh, you know a very accurate ethnographer and present uh, you know a, an unbiased account of Gaulish life he was writing a piece of military propaganda but that's okay because he still has some really interesting comments that he makes about Gaulish custom and he mentions British practices as well. And so, you know, while he does, you know, seem to um, have some discrepancies in his military accounts, uh, some of his his accounts of um, tradition and practice is really interesting to consider. So Caesar writes that um, unlike other societies that he knows of. In Gaulish society, children are not permitted to approach their fathers openly until they are of age for military service. So you can't be just a boy and stand in public in the presence of your father. So that's a really interesting uh, comment to make and an observation to make. And he sets it apart from, from other Uh, society's practices that he knows about. And um, so while we don't really have much further information, it is interesting to consider how this plays into our understanding of age categories and maybe rites of passage. So if if a boy was not able to stand in public in the presence of his father, does he need to go through a specific rite of passage in order to come fully into the community and, you know, claim his, you know, his uh, family association? So that's a really interesting question. So that's an example of, of how we can read accounts of adjacent societies, uh, because we also know that um, people in Gaul were sending their sons to Britain to be trained as Druids because Druids were exempt from tax and military service. And so Caesar 
says that some children go of their own accord and some families send their children. And this training can take up to 20 years, but it comes out of Britain, or so he he says. Pursuing this line of work, so we have an example of going to a specific formal apprenticeship if, you know, if there are, in fact, druidic schools. So not only are they learning this practice, it, they're also doing it for the protective advantages that it can offer. We also know that uh, children of the more elite families who are involved in these military, military conflicts are also being given over as hostages in negotiations as well. But this normally means that they're, li- they're living a pretty cushy life because they need to be well taken care of. Um, but they're also getting exposed to the uh, Roman culture at this time as well. So it benefits the um, Romans to bring these children over, have them as hostages, but basically raise them culturally Roman and so that they can be a friend to the empire when the time comes for them to possibly take up the mantle of their, their community. I'm I'm fascinated by the differences that perhaps there are in Britain versus culturally for for children. Do we know much about that um, versus say like you know the the culture that is that is Rome? Is there still you know things that make this island unique in its own culture that they're trying to instill into their children that is like different than from the Roman Empire? Definitely, you you see during the later Iron Age that the connections are widening as far as with um, you know Roman exposure, you know trading, diplomatic visits, those kinds of things. So the contacts are widening, but you also see a resurgence of localized styles. So sometimes you see some of these regions going back to a tradition that they had practiced long ago, perhaps in order to, you know, differentiate themselves from this huge change that they can see happening uh, as well. So there, there are signs within the archaeological record of kind of a hearkening back to tradition with this new presence, you know, this very new powerful presence of the Roman Empire making its way this direction. So not children, you know, explicitly, but within these communities, you know, we see it evidenced within some of the styles of the craftwork. Um, it's uh, kind of taking a, a, a more insular, going insular, I guess, is how you could, could best put it. You, but it's hard to know. We don't have any sources from British communities saying, this is how we feel about this new incursion. But you can see it demonstrated within some of the material culture. To conclude our podcast for today, I wanted to ask you, why do you think it's important to study childhood? And particularly, you have you know, chosen this, this, a certain time period to study childhood. So how did you end up choosing the Iron Age? And how did you end up wanting to, to dive so deeply into understanding uh, the childhood during this time? Yes, well, besides being a mother myself, um, I have always been interested in in the lives of children as they contribute contribute towards the the larger culture. So, when I discovered um, you know Iron Age archaeology, I was just I was captivated with how different it seemed and how unique it was. And so, exploring the lives of children within this context just seemed like an, a natural. Uh, 
avenue for me to take. You know, I get to look at the adaptive strategies of families, uh, of ideas of kin and community, um, of social and demographic concerns, and then also of creativity, innovation, and identity creation. And it's done, but it's really challenging because we, you know, it's it's um, prehistory. It's prehistorical sources. So you have to get really creative with, with your approaches and um, you have to uh, get your hands on a lot of really interesting and beautiful material. You have to get your feet on the land, go check out the settlements and the hill forts to kind of understand what type of environment they they may have faced and may have been living in. Um, so I find that you know children in archaeology is integral to us understanding uh, the ways cultures change and the way culture is transmitted and shared and how it endures and how it changes. I started out with a master's in uh, medieval Welsh literature, and there was a module on Celtic archaeology. And I was incredibly fascinated by that module. And I just keep wanted, wanting to write more and more papers uh, in, in the master's program on Celtic archaeology, which um, we didn't get much chance to go into using the term Celtic today because it's not quite as applicable to Britain as it is uh, on the continent. But um, so when the time came for me to decide to move into doctoral studies. I just knew that I kept writing papers on the Iron Age and kept wanting to explore and then started working on an excavation in Northwest Wales. That's an Iron Age hill fort site. And, um, and that just sealed the deal for me. I was uh, really fascinated with it and continue to be really fascinated with it today. So um, it, it, moved from a literature inroad and then it just turned into, oh, I get to be outside doing excavations, looking at material culture. And then I also get to read the literature as well. So it's it's a dream scenario. Oh, that uh, sounds so fun. Just you get to just be so involved in all aspects of, of history and archaeology. Have you ever gotten to go to a dig site where you found something super cool that went along with your research? Not that specifically applies to my research, but I did find a piece of uh, Samian ware, which was a Romano-British piece of pottery on a site that there wasn't a lot going on. Um, and that was my very first day in the, in the trench ever. So that was really exciting. Um, I haven't been as lucky since because in Wales, the soil is very acidic and we don't have very good preservation here. Uh, so you're generally you know, scraping around a lot of rocks and, you know, looking at settlement layouts and um, as opposed to, you know, finding all these amazing things that, you know, you might find on other sites. So, but, but um, yeah, it's, it's been a great experience to go work on these excavations and um, get a better handle on uh, the, the layout and how people were utilizing their environment and then to bring children into that conversation and what their lives might have looked like at these settlements in these landscapes is um, just so it's endlessly fascinating. Well, I think I think that's a you know good good note to end on right there. Um, thank you again so much for being with us today. It's been wonderful to chat with you about different uh, you know aspects of childhood in the Iron Age and specifically in Britain. I've, have found it incredibly fascinating. I hope our listeners have found it fascinating as well. Thank you for having me. 
Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. We greatly appreciate your reviews on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to Then Again. You can follow the Northeast Georgia History Center on Facebook and Instagram, and check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of great programs. Thanks, y'all, and see you next week for another episode of Then Again.